you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm super excited to bring you this episode. A lot of you don't know that two decades plus ago, I used to live in Southern California. And back then, there was an iconic brand. It was a donut shop. The original was located in Inglewood, California. And you couldn't miss this place because it had a 25-foot donut on the roof. Now, I might be exaggerating, but it literally was a huge donut. And it just stood out like McDonald's Golden Arches. And it was that important to the brand. Well, they've grown huge since then. I'm super excited to bring you the present of this episode. Episode, Mr. Mark Collegian. And with me also is my good friend and fellow industry pro, Jamie Oikel of RunningRestaurants.com. And he and I frequently get together to do recordings and collaborate. So the two of us will be interviewing Mark. So I hope you tune into the video because we're going to be showing you some of those 58 varieties of these mouth-watering donuts. But there's so much more. We're going to be talking all about some of the challenges they've had during the pandemic, even though the brand keeps growing and they keep adding locations with lots more to come this year and next year, as well as the international franchise. But we're going to talk all about the importance of training and maintaining consistency when you have multiple locations. So you're not going to want to miss this. And thanks again to GoTab for sponsoring this episode. Rockstars, from one operator to another, before we begin today's episode, let me tell you about GoTab. GoTab is a way to offer your customers safety, convenience, personal service, and respect for their time schedule. Your customers are free to choose how and when they order, pay, and connect with your restaurant. GoTab has a QR-based contactless ordering and payment feature that lets guests open their own guest checks as well as split tabs and tips from their own device. I really like the leave at table pay and go feature that helps servers spend less time swiping cards and more time serving guests. It's all about the service. Flexible menus, Digital gift cards, curbside pickup and delivery, and other smart features create a personal connection with guests and leave the tech in the background. With GoTab, you can safely turn tables 30% faster while enjoying 20% higher check and tip averages. Best of all, you never lose the personal touch. I love that. GoTab helps you put hospitality first. With this podcast, they're offering free activation for curbside pickup and delivery. Just text ROCKSTARS to 213-474-3925. I'll also put this number in today's show notes. Now, on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. These are engaging topics that help restaurants rock their profits, build their brands, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. With me today is my fellow co-host, industry professional, colleague, and friend, Jamie Oikel of RunningRestaurants.com. And our guest today is Mr. Mark Collegian, and he is the president of an iconic Southern California institution called Randy's Donuts. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you today? Thank you. Great to be here. Well, this is really exciting for me because I used to live in Los Angeles, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Randy's Donuts, so I'm really excited to have you as a guest, and uh, we're looking forward to talking to you. So as my audience knows, I usually start off with a backstory of the guest. We're interested. Where did it all begin for you in this crazy restaurant hospitality business? Did it start young? Did you fall into it? Did you always know you were going to run a donut empire? Tell us. You know, I had no idea. We'll leave it at that. You know, I spent... First 20 years of my professional career uh, being a lawyer, uh, litigation attorney, uh, primarily representing women who were victims of sexual assault. Um, that was rewarding, but, you know, exhausting. Yeah. I got out of that business in the early 2000s, and I'm also in the casino business in California. And uh, basically, I've got three daughters, uh, two that have graduated from USC, one that's still at USC. And the casino business is, is, not for, is not for them, let's just say. So I'm sitting around on my computer uh, just looking, trying to think about investments for them uh, to get them started. And lo and behold, I go to this website called bizbysell.com, and I put in unlimited money, unlimited opportunity, and there was a little tagline that said, well-known 50-year-old restaurant for sale. And I thought to myself, you know, that might be some of the 
old Jewish delis in Beverly Hills. Yeah, that great. Been, that's been around forever. <laughs> great, great income stream for the kids. Um, I have some background in, in a restaurant experience in our casino operations. We've been, you know, we've always had several restaurants within them. Of so course. I learned a lot, learned a lot through that process. I actually had a Pink's franchise for a very brief period of time, uh, way back when, before he was expanding at all. Now, Pink's, I remember, the original location on La Brea, I think, and then there's one in West L.A., and maybe there's more now, but, you know, famous for the hot dogs and the burgers and stuff, right? They've opened up in a few other locations since then. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I call up this ad that had just been posted a few hours earlier, and the uh, young girl who answered the phone said, yeah, it's Randy's Donuts. And I said, okay, how much do they want? Okay, how much does it make? I said, write it up. Uh, because I knew that opportunity would be gone. If oh, I yeah, in a heartbeat. By the way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I joke about it, but I basically got death threats for three to four months afterward, after the announcement was made. Because all these athletes, all these actors, all these restaurateurs uh, throughout Los Angeles came just yelling at my door. You know, I've been telling those two brothers who own their restaurant, you know, for 30 years, I want to buy it whenever they're ready to sell. Um, so we got through that you know, that little phase. And then we started our goal of expansion. How many years ago was that? Like, when did you first buy the, this institution called Randy's? We bought, I bought it in 2015 and I uh, got a lot of great help from uh, a real icon in this business, Bill Allen, who was president of Fleming's Outback. Um, he's been in almost every food concept, Mendocino Farms, Bruxy, uh, Habit Burger, his group, uh, you know, hap luckily happens to be friends of the family. And uh, so I got his advice, which was, hey, stick with it for a couple of years. Don't move yet. Learn the business and don't screw it up. And I said, okay, I think I can handle that. Don't fix what our... wasn't broken. <laughs> was there yeah. anything broken that you fixed or did you just leave it alone and just keep printing money? You know, I had to remodel the interior. It'd been a long time, but the important things, the recipes and the head bakers that have been there for 20 years, we haven't changed, didn't change a thing. You know, it's interesting when you take over a, a restaurant or almost any kind of business, here come all the suppliers, all the vendors who never had your business before. Yep. Right. They of course. In, you know, oh, yeah. I can save you a penny here. I can save you a penny there. And, it just didn't seem to be worth it to make any changes. And it's funny, I went back to Bill Allen and, I, and he had said, I said, hey, how does a restaurant that's been around for 50 years fail? And he said, well, interestingly, we, we had a uh, report commissioned last year at a tremendous cost. And the answer was, you know, 86% of the people said, it's just not the same anymore, was their reason for why they don't go back. And it turns out if you peel that onion back a little bit, you find some guy came in or woman came in, bought the business, saw ways that they could shave a little bit here, shave a little bit there. And pretty soon before you know it, it's not the same product anymore. And I always tell people, my opinion is it's a fine line in the restaurant business between doing it right and doing it wrong. And if you fall on the wrong side of that, you know, I hate to say, but your investment probably will not pan out. So how many locations right now? Because I know you're expanding pretty rapidly, and I think there's 12 new uh, locations on the horizon coming up. But right now you've got, what, eight or so in Southern California? Right. We're opening store six and seven uh, this month and next month yeah. in Florence and Costa Mesa. We have four more planned for Southern California next year. We have, we're very excited. We're opening up three to five stores, depending on construction, in Las Vegas next year. And we're going into Central California starting in January for three stores. Internationally, we're just going a little bit crazy. Um, Korea has really fell in love with our product and really taken off. They've opened their third store now in, within a few months. And uh, they're, they're thinking big things. We're all over uh, Saudi Arabia. We just signed with Kuwait. We're just signing a deal with France and Morocco. Um, we have a lot of deals pending in Asia just as soon as the whole COVID crisis, you know, comes to pass. 
You know, that's so interesting. And I, I know that uh, this international expansion is, is obviously expanding the notoriety and the brand awareness, you know, across the pond and all that kind of stuff. But did they contact you? Did you have sort of this idea that it could go international? Like, how did the first franchise, like Korea, why? I mean, how did it all start? Well, a restaurant broker actually brought me brought me that deal who we had hired and was we were working with for for quite a while um the franchise experts so to speak and uh you know we always felt really good things internationally and that i gained that from talking to uh the prior owners two great brothers larry and ron weintraub you know we bring them out to every uh, store opening um they're just great guys they always hang around inglewood all the time um i think they they suffer a little bit from the uh, btd um, which my dad calls born to death syndrome. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. You can't, it's, it was their identity and they let it go. How did that go for them? Did they regret the decision? No, no, they were, they were in their late seventies. They'd been there 50 years. They'd yeah. been, you know, seven days a week every day. And they looked forward to the retirement and they're, you know, they're very happy for us and everything we're doing. Um, and they're just, they're just really great guys. But and they're your biggest fans now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we saw that internationally, um, they had had opportunities. They had been telling us for to expand all over China, expand everywhere, and they just it just wasn't their their cup of tea. And so we really thought we'd do well internationally. Asia has a real passion for sweet tooth, the sweet tooth, um, as does the Middle East. Um, so we're looking for good stuff. So obviously you're so well known in Southern California, you know, that word institution keeps coming up because the longevity of the brand, it's amazing. You know, I've always loved the giant donut, you know, on top of the locations. I mean, that is a, it's kind of like the golden arches at McDonald's, right? It's your calling card. It's what, you know, it's instantly recognizable. It's kind of like uh, classic Route 66, all that kind of stuff. It's got that sort of 50s sort of, you know vibe to it it's really cool does that translate to international are they just building a brand there that people are completely unaware of they're just interested in the product but they don't know anything about hey this is southern california rock and roll surfing you know all that kind of cool stuff i mean how does it does it it had its identity i mean they know about it it. did yeah Yeah. okay cool whether they know about it from movies only and the giant donuts whether it's someone who's come there and eaten before um we have a pretty high uh, visibility factor and recognition factor internationally. That's awesome. Fantastic. Hey, <laughs> yeah, Jamie, jump on in, man. Dive on yeah. in. Yeah. Listen, uh, do you have the ability to go to their website for two seconds? And, and if so, if so, I'll just talk in the meantime, but the reason, the reason I want to yeah. do that is because I, I have one of their page. I have the page up that has the, our selections on it which is probably under varieties if you go there. I looked I at want, that too. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. You just, we, we got to show this page if we, if we get a chance because, yeah, yeah. because mm-hmm. holy cow, you can see what the heck's going on here. Um, so while, while Raj tries to pull that up, Mark, talk about, um, these are not ordinary donuts. So first of all, if, if anyone wasn't, wasn't, wasn't sure of that these are not, you have just an incredible lineup. So how do you, how do you, where did these come from? How do you create them? What's, uh, what's going on with that? Well, most of them have been around for about, you know, 30, 40 years. And you look through our list and you look, start with the classics and the deluxe. And those are class, you know, those are real traditional donuts that you've seen everywhere. Our head baker, Ismail Garcia, is somewhat of an artist in his own right. And uh, he's always creating new things. He created the buttercrumb donut that you'll, you'll see on the page. And, and literally we tell people it'll change your life when you bite into that. <laughs> His Are latest, you guys seeing this? Can you see the donuts? Yes, yeah. sir. His latest now, level of fashion um, yeah. is just rising to the top. But you know, the, the funny thing is, the story we always tell is we do all the catering for uh, Fox Studios in, uh, in L.A. Awesome. And they, you know, they got 15, 20, whatever productions with uh, million-dollar uh, actresses and actors. And at the end of the day, you, you know, people who – want their omelet made, you know, only a certain specific way um, for calories and so forth, just dive into the traditional donuts. Um, they don't care. The, we started introducing the premium donuts uh, in about 2018, simply because out in California, 
we're starting to get some comp. There's some competition from these gourmet donuts that are four dollars and fifty cents up to five six dollars and so forth. So we wanted to come out with our own line of of uh, different topping type donuts, but do it at a lower price point. We're very proud that we're able to keep our price point as low as it is, because um, that lets us serve you know a wider you know population and demographics. You get the blue collar worker you get the family you, you just you take care of everybody and we're proud of that you got 50 i counted 58 different varieties here so there's got to be challenges to making all the donuts fresh in that type of quantity and in that type of variety right like that's got to be huge but yet you're probably rolling out new ideas all the time does that happen we, we roll out new ideas uh ltos and if they stick you yeah. know, we keep that. The buttermilk stick, the lemon old-fashioned stick. We're doing uh, some pe- peanut butter. I can't even explain it uh, with Reese's on it and so forth. Awesome. And, and you know, I've given them the, the leeway to be creative. But the funny thing is, at the end of the day, all said and done, that glazed donut of ours that's four and a half inches wide and two and a half inches tall and light and fluffy and airy sells three times more than our second than our second best seller. And I mean, that's we'll, in yeah. Well, the glazed donut is is kind of a major classic, right? Cuz I'm 58 years old and I ate them like 52 years ago, 56 yeah. years ago when I was little little kid. And and where I grew up in Massachusetts, it was called a honey dip donut, but essentially it's a glazed donut. Right. So the, some people call them raised, you know, yeah. them as raised. They've been around a long, long time, right? And then yep. obviously the chocolate and the sprinkles and you know all that kind of stuff. This is With, this is amazing. Yeah, and they all sell, right? Oh yeah, no, we don't we don't keep anything on there. Um, we've we've gotten rid of a few over the years um, that weren't just weren't that popular. Um, you know, the interesting thing about making donuts—it's not as necessarily a secret. I mean, we do everything by hand. We've got our own uh, proprietary flour made. We have we are having our own proprietary glaze made for us by the the, the large manufacturer. There's only two large manufacturers of most of these products uh, in the United States, and we do a volume that allows us to have our own proprietary items. Um, but at the end of the day, when you think about a donut, right? You've got two types of donuts. You've got cake and you've got raised. Okay. Everything after that is what you put on top. You know, you see a lot of shops popping up that are very creative with their toppings. And that's cool, and it's, it's a good time for everybody. But at the core, their donut doesn't stand up to our donut. And that's what really makes the difference. So I got two questions. James, I don't want to interrupt if you got one. Do you want to dive in? Well, not, only only to the extent that I, I mean, we 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 have to uh, get to where we are today in in the current world of uh, pandemicness, and you know, and so we we got to say how that has changed. So I would, I do want to go there pretty soon, mm-hmm. but okay. uh, you can you can take us there when you're ready. Yeah, I was really interested, Des, because there was sort of a trend, call it a craze for a while. Maybe it's still going on. You would know better where cupcakes became super huge and cupcake shops opened up all over the place, right? So is that still something that you would consider competition? And then if yes, tell us about it. But I'm also curious about, you know, what is the competition? Is it Krispy Kreme? Because that's well known. Is it other independent donut shops or you just say I'm dominating this segment and I really don't care what the competition is doing because we're dominating the segment. Like tell us all about that. Well, we're, you know, we're, we're in donuts themselves at the right price points are a very interesting uh, dessert item mm-hmm. because it's really the only dessert. Well, first it's the only American created dessert, but uh, it's really the only dessert that you can eat morning, noon and night. You know, surprisingly, uh, everyone might think that, oh, 90% of their sales come in from during the morning hours and everybody closes at noon, which you see in a lot of donut shops, noon, two o'clock. Ours are are eaten all day long. We actually do 50 to 60% of our sales between 5 a.m. and 1 p.m. And then we do another third in the afternoon and, and so forth into the evening because at our price point, we're a great dessert item. We getting them. People are getting them after lunch. 
They're taking them home after work. They're eating them after dinner. The uh, people who've been uh, imbibing of, of whatever turns them on at night, whether they're smoking something or drinking something, they like to come in for a donut um, late, late at night. But, you know, as far as competition goes, you know, cupcakes, little muffins, things like that, they've all got their own sector. I don't really see us as, as competing uh, in, the, in that world. As far as uh, other donut shops go, we're kind of unique because what we have in the donut industry is we've got neighborhood donut shops that might sell, you know, 500 donuts a day along with sandwiches and lottery tickets and so on and so forth. Um, and they're really not our competition. You've got the Krispy Kremes, you know, Krispy Kreme, Duncan, you know, has their variety. Krispy Kreme has its, you know, uh, glazed offering. Um, they're probably closer to, to our competition. Um, but, you know, I find that every area has its own great donut shop, you know, has their own favorites. And we try not to go right up against someone who's, who's got a local following. Um, but, yeah, no, as far as competition goes, we stand differently than any other donut shop, really, I think, because we can go from the $1.25 glazed donut all the way up to the, you know, fancy white ganache chocolate with, you know, caramel on it and so on and so forth um, that we do at $3. So, you know, we appeal to everybody. You know, we have a saying that says, you can't be an office hero um, if it costs you $50 to bring a dozen donuts to the office. Absolutely you know, so, cool. so we really think that yeah. we, can, we can appeal to everyone. All right, rock on. Jamie, dive on in. Uh, let's get into COVID. Yeah, bring us uh, bring us out of the we can we can go back to full screen mode and all that all that fun stuff if you want, Raj. Right. But yeah, um, sure. so obviously we're t- way too many months into this uh, situation for everybody, and for every restaurant it's different. Rod- Roger and I've been covering it since March when when it really hit and the restrictions came in place. We've had seminars on it and, and webinars and workshops, but it's different for everyone. And I think it's probably very different for, for you. Whereas I, I, you know, not, not, not operating as much as a, as a sit down operation, able to kind of work through these issues as long as you're being safe and, and so forth. And of course, California has some, has, has had some of the toughest restrictions anywhere. So uh, just in general, how has the pandemic affected you in the beginning uh, and then where you are now and kind of where things uh, go in the future? What do you think? Well, I think it depends on the kind of operation that, that you have. Our two drive-through operations doing very well, um, as 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 really are most drive-through restaurants these days. They've all seen a, an uptick uh, in sales. Our our walk-in restaurants are doing just as fine. It was really rough in the beginning. The February, March, and April was rough for everyone. Our Century City kiosk um, we had to close for several months uh, simply because the entire mall had to be closed. Uh, and it hasn't rebounded um, like like we hoped it would, primarily because the massive amount of office space that's in that area has simply not returned. And that, I think, is going to be the biggest mm-hmm. challenge for any restaurateur uh, that relies on a downtown or an office population. We're just not seeing it. We see a lot of uh, comments from a lot of the major companies. We're not going back to the office till July or we're not going back until specific points in time. And I think that's really going to hurt as far as COVID uh, goes for, in terms of expansion, that is, it's kind of, you know, kind of an oxymoron because it's done really, it's actually presented a lot of opportunities, sadly. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of restaurants have gone out of business. A lot of chains have, uh, divested themselves of their units that might have been in good locations but simply weren't performing as well. And it might have been one thing to keep them on the books uh, for whatever reason, you know, two years ago or even a year ago. But now when they're, if it's hemorrhaging money, they got to get rid of it. So it's actually created a lot of opportunities for, for expansion um, if you're willing to take that risk. And I think it's a risk that pays off for us uh, simply because, uh, you know, I use my own money. We don't go out. We're not 
going to the VC guys and the private equity guys and so forth to raise capital. So that allows me to control exactly what uh, we want to do. And um, I think our price point helps a lot. I think you can always expand your product if your price point is low enough that a recession doesn't hurt it, a slowdown uh, does not affect it. My father used to uh, have this great saying that was, I'd rather sell a $500 item 10 times to 10 people than a $5,000 item once. Um, so I think that's, that's going to pay off for us in the long term. I think now, and by now I'd probably say in the last 30 days, 20 days, we're seeing a lot more activity uh, by the larger brands and in getting back into, the, into expansion. I think the vaccine is going to make a world of difference. Um, I don't know, you know, any, I have no special knowledge of any kind, but in the hopes that the vaccine is available to everybody by January, February, something like that, I can see everything coming back, you know, before summertime. And that's how I'm envisioning it. Yeah, let, let, let me uh, throw this kind of to, to both of you. So, Roger, when Roger and I talk, we talk a lot about about cost structure of the restaurants. And when and when March last March hit in April, and the folks were like, "I'm not paying rent. I don't know what to do. We're going to go under." And you see, have seen a lot of people go under. Inherently, there is a flawed there's a flawed cost structure and profit model in restaurants, and we kind of all know this. And I and to your to your point, I think you you may be. In a, a very good position because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the profit the profit structure in, in a donut shop is a lot different than a traditional restaurant. You don't need as much space, you don't have as much cost, um, and so forth. And so that really does, like to your point, put you in a good position, position to take care of op, um, opportunities. And and yeah, yeah, it's if if I was uh, out of work, I'm not going to splurge on a on a thousand dollar item, but I'm still going to buy a three dollar donut. Like the th- those things don't go away. Like people just they always want the little the little 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 pleasures in life. So that positions you as well. So Roger, from the cost side, what how do what do you, what would you ask someone that's an operator in Mark's case, or and 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 bring it to the wider scope? Like how can you make sure your costs are on point so that any sort of change in the in the ecosystem, you can survive it. What do you think? Yeah, and that's a multifaceted question that I can go in so many different directions. My my gears are turning because you know Mark told us that he had bakers that had been with him for twenty years, and when you've got really talented people that you don't want to leave, you have to keep rewarding them year after year. You have to keep bumping up their pay. You have to give them perks and all kinds of incentives. So even though the stores are smaller and there might not be a lot of labor in each store, maybe the labor cost is something that continually rises, even though the prices of the donuts have to stay relatively constant. That was one thought I had. I was going to ask Mark about, you know, the margins on each donut. Um, Do they all contribute a very similar margin based on what goes on the donut versus the toppings? Or, you know, or do you price them accordingly? Because some cost a little bit more to to, you know, to make than others. I mean, I can go down so many different roads. You know, the volume of sales on a daily basis being constant, um, you know, that, that keeps pace with all the rising costs out there. You obviously have leverage and economies of scale. You're working with the same supplier for a long time. You can keep, you know, you can keep them honest, you might say, as opposed to them constantly, uh, you know, doing something when you're not looking because they don't want to lose you as a customer. You've been with them for so long. But still, we can't control rising costs in certain areas. And I don't know if flour is constant or if the cost of flour goes up or down. Or I mean, again, I could, I could ask a zillion questions around that. So why don't you take over, Mark? Well, you know, the cost, the cost is pretty constant. Um, you know, just, just by example... We just spent uh, about a week going through all of our costs because, you know, we're at that time of the year where the, the two large bakeries will give us their price increases for January 1st. And so, we, you know, it's, it's almost funny. It's almost comical. We go through all the me- mechanisms. We, we do the recipes again. We measure it all out, so on and so forth. And it, these price increases don't amount to one or two pennies for a donut. So the product isn't really uh, getting any more expensive to make. That's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I had it my way, I'd sell them all as classics for you know a dollar twenty-five. But some of the some of the cake mixes for some of the specialty donuts are a lot more expensive. 
the toppings on the premiums are definitely expensive. When you, right. especially when you use a name brand, you mm-hmm. go to M&M or you go to Reese's or, you know, yes. Captain yep. Crunch, whatever the case may be. Yeah. 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 It, that stuff is not cheap. Um, and that really, that really jacks the price up a lot, but it's really the labor, um, and the rental rates, uh, in California, the, the at least in California, the, the price of, uh, leasing or buying land is just through the roof. Um, and when you got the big boys, uh, you know, the Canes, the Chick-fil-A's, the In-N-Out's, those guys, and even Chipotle now, Panda, you know, they'll pay $250,000, $300,000 for a ground lease out in California. Um, and that's because they're doing, you know, five, six million dollars a year in business. Well, that's, we can't compete in that. Um, did I lose you guys? Ah, we're still, you're still rolling. I got a strange pop-up. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, you're good. So that's, you know, that's, that's really an area where um, we have, don't have a lot of ability to control the pricing. And, you know, there's a saying that goes, cheap rent is very expensive. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, and you don't want to be that guy that's three blocks out of the, out of Maine and Maine because you could save $5,000. Um, so we have to, you know, avoid, avoid making those kind of mistakes, but labor, labor costs continue to rise. You know, it's not just the dollar for the cashier who's getting minimum wage plus tips. It's, you know, then everybody wants a dollar. Every position wants another dollar and it, you know, it adds up and it adds up. And if you don't keep your volume up, Mm -hmm. it's going to really, it's going to really bite, um, into your profits. So that's, that's really the hardest part, um, are the labor increases. And, you know, in California, we've got, we have problems out here. Um, You know, there's only six states, I think, or five states in the country that don't have a different minimum wage rate for tipped and non-tipped employees. And California is one of them. So, you know, no matter how much they make in tips a day, 50, 100, whatever the case may be, they're still getting that extra seven, eight dollars a day. That's a crime. I don't understand why, uh, you know, your state res... Your state restaurant association can't lobby legislature to make that shift. I mean, the legislators just don't get it. They try. They try. You know, an interesting corollary, because I'm in the casino business. Right. And our dealers get minimum wage plus tips. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a thing called a GITCA, which is a, a, income, which is a, a, a tip compliance agreement that you have with the yep. government, okay, for different industries. Uh, if you're large enough, they'll, they'll make one. So our dealers will have to report on their paychecks a minimum of say 13 to $15 an hour plus their $13 an hour uh, wage. And so they're making, you know, 60, $65,000 a year minimum. But every time there's a dollar increase, I've got to pay it to them. Right. And just at almost at every casino, it costs us like $500,000 a year. Well, at some point, you're just not going to be able to keep generating right. more income to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody has a misconception, I think, about the restaurant industry that, well, well, you can just raise your prices, keep raising your prices, keep raising your prices, because everyone else is going to have to. Well, I mean, that's, that's a road that you really don't want to go down. Um, and as a matter of fact, you see the big guys like McDonald's and so forth, you know, you could you can buy 12 different things for under a dollar. Um, and that's a different mentality, I think, because I, I, I believe that's based on the, well, let's just get all the dollars in as many dollars as we can. And we'll, we'll worry about the bottom line later. And I'm well, not sure now you're talking. Yeah. Now you're talking about a market share battle, you know, <laughs> McDonald's right. is raises its prices. It's going to lose share to Burger King, you know, and, and maybe even KFC or down the line. It's like, it's a real delicate balance when you're at that level and you're dealing with something similar. You have a customer that's been used to buying a donut at a certain price and to that customer, there's a value there. And if you were to raise prices year after year after year, at some point you're alienating your customer base based on what they expect the, the price and the value to be for what you're selling. And they don't, re- I agree a thousand percent and they don't really care when you tell them that, well, every other donut shop in you know, a 20 mile area is selling yeah. their place for a dollar forty-five, so we've got to increase. No, you don't. You know, and you just you try to make everybody happy. 
and you can, but you try. Hey, Raj, I have, I have a question yeah. that goes towards, uh, toward, towards mar- marketing. And I want to ask, because I, I, again, I'm just poking around on the website and I saw a few things earlier. Great mm-hmm. uh, media exposure. You know, celebrities are there. There's events there. You're, you're in movies. Um, does that do the marketing by itself? Is that all you do? do you, or do you also have uh, social media campaigns? Do you, do, need, do you rely on word of mouth? How active are you in that realm? You know, we're pretty, we're, we've become very active in social media the last six months. Um, you know, I don't, it's hard, it's hard to know because our, our, we're such a loyal customer base. Really hard to tell whether or not any of that drives any new business in, or we're just keeping our current customers informed. We hired a great uh, public relations company recently called Dog and a Duck. Um, they have great t-shirts. And, uh. They, uh, you know, we've been getting a lot of exposure. Every time we open up a restaurant, um, it's, it's like there was nothing else going on in Southern California for the day. Um, so they're doing a great job. Uh, social media, we want to keep expanding. We're probably behind the times. But, uh, you know, we're not doing, we're, we're doing it organically. and We're doing it with real customers. We're not buying followers um, or doing anything like that. What, what what about the celebrity stuff though? I see I've seen a number of high profile stuff. Does that happen by itself by their outreach? They want to be uh, affiliated with it. Uh, that must be that stuff must just be fun to fun fun when it, it comes about. It is, you know, it's it, it's great for my my employees love it certainly. Um, they we do a lot of collaborations. Um, we did a uh, collaboration with Tom's Shoes where they came to us. Mostly people come. The bike. The bottom line is mostly people come to us. Um, we're not out promoting, uh, hey, put us on your T-shirts, put us on your yeah. your tennis shoes, but it keeps coming. Lucky Lucky Brand has a sweatshirt of ours out there right now that they created. Um, Zara's done it. Tom Shoes has done it. We've got a few coming up in the next year <coughs> that are uh, apparel-related. Um, people love to wrap our donut. And it's not cheap. <clears throat> Just the process of uh, having the wrap created and installed and taken down is about twenty grand. But these, you know, some of these companies, mostly entertainment companies or large social media companies, like to do it. You know, that's an interesting point. Um, the celebrity and the Hollywood connection. I mean, there's so much product placement that goes on in Hollywood that really, you know just puts a spotlight on a certain brand. Is there any way that uh, you can take part in that? And is there any way to really brand a donut so that the logo shows up when someone, you know, uh, Cameron Diaz is eating a Randy's donut in some movie and you somehow get, you know, get the exposure from that. Is that possible? Well, excuse me. When they use our, when they use our, our logo and stuff, they've got to come get permission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do get ripped off a lot. Um, and we just sometimes we'll just let it go by if it's a good thing or, or so yeah. forth. But uh, we try to get permission every time. That's jumping across the screen here. Apologize for that. Yeah, <laughs> my home office. I got cats, and sometimes they jump all over the studio. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm keep actually, going, Mark. I'm actually in my bed right now because you see, I keep a big picture of Randy's donuts above my above my bed. My wife really uh, thinks that's classy. No, I'm kidding. Awesome. Um, <laughs> awesome. But, uh, but no, it's. Uh, we, we try to do that stuff. We don't seek it out. Mm-hmm. We welcome it. Um, yeah. But they always want to come and film stuff, and, and and we think it's great. And we'll always we'll always allow that, and and it's just part of who we are. Yeah, that's cool. so. I, I, I brought, I, last, re, super quick thing you no, can touch no. on because you talk, you talked about merchandise. Other people doing your stuff. I saw yeah, right, on your right. own stuff. You guys you guys Correct. sell your own, own merchandise. Uh, small part of the business, a significant part, just a fun part. What do you think? Fun part at yeah. this point. Now we are introducing a new limited line that will come out in January, February, where we've really uh, let's just say taken the lid off of it and allowed these guys to create, you know, bunch of different things. And we'll see how that goes. Um, I think there's a market definitely for it. Um, we do really well with the with the sales at our I- iconic location mm-hmm. by the airport because that's you know, more of a tourist situation. We do a lot on, on a mail, uh, through the internet, our website. 
but it's not its own separate business at this point or, you know, it's not that big of a profit center. Gotcha. So you got a location, uh, if I'm correct, you've either opened it or you're opening it at LAX. Is it open right now? No, we, it is a deal that's been signed and yeah. approved. Okay. And they're just, I mean, they're, they're not requiring any of the franchisees to, to do anything at this point. Um, still a lot of them out here aren't even open. The, the terminals are open, but maybe only one or two food stations are open. Okay. It's coming but when that happens, I mean, I see that, I mean, there's so many Pacific Rim visitors that pass through LAX and that just seems like it's going to be a huge potential opportunity to increase the, uh, the franchise opportunities in Asia and elsewhere, right? Just because they see it at LAX, they suddenly equate it to LA and they try a donut. It's like, Next thing you know, they want to start a franchise. I mean, I could see this totally blowing your business up just because oh, of the airport location. It does No, it does help a great deal. And it's interesting. When we get contacted by people who are interested in franchising and so forth, which, you know, we just started franchising domestically in June of last year. And then as soon as we were starting to make deals, COVID happened. Um, so everybody's pretty much on hold right now. But sure. historically, at least what I've been told, is people who are interested in getting franchises or, or building a territory, they have to have an attachment to the, to the product. And generally, we find that with people who've already been out to our store. We don't get a lot of, imp- we don't get a lot of response from people who have never visited our store. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's hard to tell somebody, well, I have their best burger. I've got the greatest this or that. Well, yeah, sure you do. Maybe you do. But until you taste it, what do you know? It's all words. Consistency is probably the most important thing when you're franchising and to maintain the integrity of that brand. So it's relatively easy, I guess, in Southern California. And I'm not going to speak for you, but most franchises operate on the royalty agreement. And then a franchisee needs to purchase so much of the ingredients and maintain the recipe consistency and all that kind of stuff so that the product is identical to the next location. How does that work um, overseas? Are they still required to buy their ingredients? Their, you know, Are your bakers literally shipping stuff around the world? Because that wouldn't be cost effective. Are you duplicating what you're doing here in Korea? Like, How does all that work? Well, we bring it, if, if it's international, we bring a team over here for yep. about four weeks to learn our process. And again, because these are the, the manufacturers we use, uh, no secret, Bakemark and Don Foods, uh, they're international. Okay. That makes it considerably easier. Um, and there's two, there's two, you know, equipment manufacturers that we're, we're in tight with. Um, so there isn't really, has not been an issue except for a few instances where we couldn't get the exact same ingredients shipped overseas. Now, we will allow them the flexibility on some of the toppings to go locally um, because it's just a lot more cost savings for them to buy it there. And, you know, every area has, has their own unique uh, item. For example, Korea, boom, they wanted the mango flavoring. So, okay, fine. They sent it to us. We tested it. We said, yeah, it's going to work great. Go ahead and use it. But we really haven't had a product problem, and that's thankful to to our suppliers. There are a lot of restaurants that have become brands unto themselves, very similar, maybe a similar story to Randy's long history. At some point, they want to expand with the franchising model. And it's got to be a tremendous amount of work, legal work and other work, just putting the framework in place and figuring out how you're going to duplicate a system and a series of systems from one location to multiple locations, aside from the legalities and the huge expense in putting all the manuals and the requirements together to get people to follow the formula. It's like, who did you work with to put the formulas and the systems in place so that it suddenly it was duplicated? duplicatable if that's a word you know what i mean across uh different units well you know falling on my lawyer legal background nobody likes to reinvent the wheel so you know we went to to establish people we have manual writers um Mm -hmm. who do nothing but this Uh, our law firm 
uh, DLA Piper in Chicago, Stuart Hirschman, does nothing but franchises. Um, you know, and again, our supply chain is very narrow. So that's, you know, and again, it's, it's nationwide, it's international. So a lot of that helps the process. Um, but we, you know, it did take us almost a year and a half, even after having done this for, you know, 50 years or so forth. Uh, it still took about a year and a half to get everything dialed in to be, get in a position where we could offer the franchises and had the support to give them um, internally and with training and, and so forth. And, you know, we don't want to make that mistake uh, that a lot of them unfortunately make. They overpromise uh, to franchisees and they end up in litigation. You know, we're not going to avoid that route. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it certainly helps to have your legal background in everything you're doing. It does. It, it, it you know, it comes in, comes in handy with leases, with negotiations, right, and, right. and so forth. But the franchising, I leave to, I leave to the experts. You know, you got to do it every day of the week. So, do you personally get involved in selecting potential franchisees, and what are the qualifications you look for for someone coming in? Because there's lots of people out there that want to quit their job, you know, cash in a 401k and say, hey, I, I want to be my own boss, yet they have absolutely zero business acumen. I mean, how, how tight do you screen these people? What do you look for? What are the minimum requirements? Well, we look for someone first who has some restaurant experience. Having money is great and you need to have it, but having money and no talent's a waste of time. Um, so if you're a money, if you're a money guy and you and you you want to invest in it because you've done your research and you know the donut industry is going in the right direction, uh, great. We we tell you find a restaurant partner, find someone with operational experience, and we'll consider you. We're really we're not looking for the single store mom paws right now i consider those to be fillers after we're first looking for guys who are already in the business whether it be donuts or, or anything else but they understand running a multiple multi-unit operation i mean you know it's like they say with children right once you get to the second one it's a little bit harder you get to the third one it's impossible um it, it you know every store creates you know more more issues um, because you have more teams. So we really look for people who have had that experience, who've been through it, maybe are, are already a franchisee for another brand and want to pick up some more stores. Um, that's the road that we're trying to go. And that's admittedly, admittedly a lot harder and slower process than simply the, the guys who, get, who want the one store here and one store there. I'm going to ask one final question that let Jamie um, finish up with anything he has. But obviously, one of the most important foundational elements of any restaurant business or any business of any kind, obviously, is the staff and the staff development and how you train those people and how you recognize and reward them to keep them, you know, from going down the street to the next person and how you get rid of the C players and you really develop what I call the dream team. What's your magic formula for, you know, onboarding a new staff person, getting them up to speed in the job and then turning them loose on the customers so that they're brand ambassadors for your business. There's got to be some magic formula there, you know, to sustain what you've achieved through your people. Well, I think it's our willingness and maybe it's because it's a family operation and we're not counting every single penny and so forth um, is what our, our VP of operations, Samara Friedman, that we hired a couple of years ago, she goes, I've never seen anybody. I've been in this business for 20 years. No one invests as much in training as you do. And I think that's really the secret. We will put people on for two weeks time, you know, longer than anybody else will do for the training because they are represented. They are ambassadors of our brand, um, especially with the baking team in the back. We give them plenty of time to learn because, you know, one bad donut, one bad experience can turn a customer off, you know, forever. The other thing that we do is we really try to instill in everybody the pride of our product. And so we have a system where anyone can take a donut off the line. The baker, the fryer, the decorator, the salesperson, uh, the boxer, anyone can say, you know what, this one doesn't look like it has enough icing or this got 
uh, damn and bent, whatever. This one might mm-hmm. look a little overcooked, and you throw them out. Or we give, depending on the time of day, we'll set them aside for donation, um, depending on how bad it is. But no, but we we really we really instill our in our staff the pride of what they're delivering, and I think that makes the difference. For sure, huge attention to quality control, and it's great that people are empowered to recognize that is a substandard donut. That is not something that that Mark or literally the founders of this company would want getting out to the public. And it's great that they... When you do it by hand, you're going to get the occasional that sat in the fryer too long or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sure. Awesome. Jane, what else you got? Yeah, man, listen, uh, I'd love, first of all, I love the, love the training piece because Roger and I often talk about that, making sure the staff is all on board and dialed in and that, 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 that is awesome. Uh, but listen, you checked all my boxes. If I were to ask one last question, uh, which, I, which I'm just thinking of right now, uh, going back to marketing is, do you do anything on the loyalty side uh, in terms of, uh, you know, 10 donuts, get your next one free or, or there's an app or there's a card or anything like that? Just curious. We're still working on that that whole program, adding an app and, and making that, you know, real easy for everyone to do. Mm. Um, we, we don't do it quite yet. We just offer good discounts on our dozens and we really try to keep our, our prices as low as possible. And that's how we give back. But we are, we will at some point um, introduce that kind of system. Good. Uh, hopefully by the end of next year. Perfect. Yeah. Good stuff, Raj. I think. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic episode. Mark, we got to thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, everyone, thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Mark. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Man, who doesn't want a donut after watching that episode? Every one of those varieties just had my mouth watering. That's just incredible. What a great story. And thanks again to Mark for joining us because we learned so much. There were so so many key learnings all about the importance of systems and maintaining the power of a brand and building that brand and training staff and just everything that, that just lights us up as restaurant owners and operators, doesn't it? I was super excited to bring you that. So... Again, it's all about the systems. And if you have any challenges in your business and you're looking for some turnkey systems to help you with your finances, your marketing, your staff training, it's all at restaurantrockstars.com. And know this, if you're having some challenges and pain points and you just want to talk shop, why not drop me a line, Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. I have a 30-minute no-obligation consultation because I love talking shop with operators and who knows, maybe I can help you. And we certainly appreciate you listening, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again to GoTab for sponsoring this episode, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.